Oh, Father, you are the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It is all wrapped up in who you are. Long ago, you spoke truths that today have become present truth. All this season long, we've been wrestling with those truths. We've been trying to get a handle on what the Word of Christ means to a contemporary generation in the third millennium. One more time in this series, we go to your Word. Dear God, please, let the Word be clear today. May we hear and may we heed through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I've got to tell you, I am really proud of our Andrews University students. We have a campus that is second to none. And Wednesday night after we finished our house of prayer, prayer service, one of our students, Heather Ferguson, came up to me. She was all excited. She said, Pastor, have you heard? I said, heard what? She said, we're going to Harvard. I said, you're pulling my leg. No, she said, we are going to Harvard University. I said, tell me. And so she proceeded to tell me the story. When she was through, I said, Heather, please, please. Email me tonight. When you go back to your dormitory room, email me. I have to have this in writing. Well, she went to the leader of the group that's going, and the leader emailed me that night. And I want to read to you this, uh, this email. Hi, Pastor Nelson. My name is Latanya Greenwich, and I have the opportunity to lead out in Benton Harbor Street Ministries this year. Students started those ministries back in the fall of 1996. They are student-originated, student-empowered, student-run, student-ministered. Beautiful, beautiful. So, she said, listen, Heather told me about the conversation. She wanted me to email you ASAP about the cool COOL conference coming up. She said, by the way, before I tell you, we've been praying this year the prayer of Jabez. And we've been asking God to expand our territory. And wow, he did. They're going to Harvard. What is this cool conference? This conference stands for the Campus Outreach Opportunity League. It is one of the largest nonprofit organizations for student leaders anywhere in the nation. Student leaders involved in, the commun- in community service. They are having their 18th anniversary at Harvard this year. Benton Harbor Street Ministries is planning on, unten- on attending and presenting a workshop titled Starting from Scratch. How to Develop a Faith-Based, Student-Led Community Service Organization. How do you like that? On the campus of Harvard University. We are blessed and grateful that God has given us this opportunity. So I wish you'd write those dates down. Come on, get them in your mind, because spring break is starting in just a few hours. Most of the kids will be on beaches in Florida, but some will be going to Harvard. Write the dates down. March 16, 17, and 18. And I hope you'll be praying that God will energize them there as they represent the cause and the kingdom well. Hallelujah. I'm proud of them. But speaking of our students, we, we sent our new perception telecast cameras out onto the campus this last week. We let the film roll while they talked. Knowing that today, of course, we will be wrapping up our series of presentations, What Left Behind, Left Behind. This seven-part series on the second and soon coming of Christ. Knowing that, we ask them this question. What does the soon coming of Jesus mean to you? I'm very grateful for my friends, Richard Aguilera and Eduardo Brugman, who, by the way, are producing the Journey Show for the end of this year, who produced this. They're the ones that pulled it off. I want you to sit back, watch, listen very carefully. We'll put... For those of you watching on television, we'll put the question once again on the screen. Now watch. It's going to be coming a lot sooner than we think because we're all so comfortable here, but the signs are actually happening all around the world. So, For me, knowing that Jesus is coming soon, I want to do everything I can as soon as I can. Um, realizing that I don't have that much time left and I want to be ready for when he does come because I know that is soon. Well, what it means to me is the fact that I'm going to be going home really soon. And it's just like getting ready for a really great trip, Um, getting prepared as best as I can, and I'm looking forward to it, looking forward to a lot of fun and seeing all my family and friends. So I'm happy and looking forward to it. As far as the second coming of Jesus is concerned, I'm definitely for it. (laughs) I think that nothing good can happen from it. (laughs) Nothing but good things could come from it. 
the evangelical world has re- misrepresented the second coming in having um, thought that there will be a rapture, some will be taken away, others will be left behind. But as, ad- as an Adventist, I believe that the second coming will be one that will be seen by everyone. Extremely important uh, issue because uh, that's the aim of our very existence as, as a church and as individuals too, to to be able to prepare for the coming and to prepare other people to the great return of his uh, coming back to this earth. It's the most uh, important event that uh, Christians are waiting for, so I'm looking forward for it. God is coming way sooner than any of us actually think. I think it's going to take us all by surprise. I think the best thing for anyone to do is to prepare themselves and uh, just go go out into the world and uh, share the good news with as many people as possible, and that's what I hope to do someday. I hope it's tomorrow, that it could happen any chance, because you never know when you're going to get in an accident and die. A lot of disasters are um, happening more and more, I guess. Um, when you have earthquakes and such in India and El Salvador and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that's talked about in the end-time events. Probably two things. First of all, it gives me the hope that things aren't going to continue going on the way they are right now that there's things are going to get better and secondly that that calls me to ask other people or tell other people of that same hope and share it with them personal I feel that is is I don't want it to be coming because I don't think that I'm ready and to miss the kingdom of heaven is it's something that we really don't think of it right now, but it's a serious issue. Well, he was honest, wasn't he? He was very honest. How did he put it? I don't want it to be coming because I don't think that I am ready. Pardon me for blurting it out right here at the beginning, but I, I, I've got to do this. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come? Hey, we, we sang the words just a moment ago. Would your heart be right if He came tonight? The Lord is coming. Are you ready? Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book, the Apocalypse. Revelation chapter 6. Read the Word of God today. That's why we're here. Revelation chapter 6, it begins in verse 12. And I beheld, pardon me, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she's shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, and it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of earth, the great men, the leaders of this world, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men and women, every bondman, every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand? Which being interpreted means, are you ready for Jesus to come? I want to put that question front and center for us. And so... Our last study together in this series, there's a study guide in your worship bulletin today. Would you please pull that study guide out? Ushers, quick, please make sure that every raised hand gets a study guide. You don't, three members came in with one worship bulletin, put your hand up. We will, we have extras for you. I want to say to those of you who are watching on television right now, you may get this study guide if you will log on to our website, PM Church, or put it on the screen for you right now, pmchurch.org. Or our companion site, areyousearching.com. We're very excited about that companion site. We've put all seven, there will be seven, of these left-behind presentations on 
AreYouSearching.com. We have video streaming as well on that uh, site. That site is put together by a group of volunteers right here on the campus of Andrews University, Pioneer Memorial Church. So please, you may get the study guide at pmchurch.org or AreYouSearching.com. I want to put the question front and center. So the first question, the first line, you see it right there. Revelation 6, 12 to 17. Who shall be able to stand? That's verse 17. Means, are you ready for Jesus to come? Put the word you, put the word the name Jesus there, please. Are you ready for Jesus to come? We are now all set up to move into our final study. What left behind, let's put it on the screen for you. What left behind, left behind the most shaking truth. Changed it after this last week. The most shaking truth. Because my secretary on Wednesday came flying into my office Wednesday afternoon to announce to me, I don't know how she heard, to announce Seattle has just been hit with what they were reporting then, a 7.0 earthquake. She's all excited because she knows I have a kid brother named Greg who is living on the 23rd floor of a high-rise apartment in Seattle. Greg moved to Seattle, by the way, in January to plant a church in the heart of the most secular city in all of America. As soon as she told me that, I got on my cell phone and I punched in Greg's coat. He answered and I said, are you live? Come on, are you? Well, come to find out that he and his associate Shasta Burr, some of you remember Shasta. She was our co-host here, right here on this stage with Net98. They're planning the church together. Both of them were at a pastor's conference in the mountains at in Washington at a place called Sunset Lake. In fact, they were kneeling in prayer when the earthquake struck. I said, wow. I said, did you think about Acts chapter 4? Remember that line? And the place after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I said, did you think about that? He said, we thought about it after we raced out of the building. <laughs> they headed back to, tra- uh, to, to Seattle and the traffic was just congested as they got to that great city. Greg got back to his apartment. It was still standing. Hallelujah. Though the 24th floor right above him, the walls were cracked. Turns out that the biggest hit Seattle got was the brick facades. They came down. Those older buildings. Fortunately for Seattle, this time, the quake was 32 miles underground. How did Revelation 6, verse 12 read? And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. I love that in the Greek. Megas seismos. You've heard of seismic, of course. Mega, big seismic. This is a big, great earthquake. Probably, however, not a description of the 6.8 trembler that hit Seattle. Probably not, however, either. A description of the killer quakes that have been rolling and rumbling through this planet since January, leaving in their broken wake stories of grief, shock, fear, and death. Probably not a prediction of those. Which means that Revelation 6 is probably not describing the 7.9 killer quake that struck northwest India, leaving over 30,000 dead and 200,000 plus homeless. It's probably not even describing the three quakes now that have hit El Salvador. The name means the Savior. The first killer quake, 7.6. Do you know that their third quake was a trembler? 6.1 struck El Salvador four minutes before Seattle was stricken. Four minutes. Mm-hmm. I was reading a piece that Mike Jones wrote in a recent uh, journal called the Adventist Review, and I want to put Mike Jones's words up on the screen. In addition to hammering India and El Salvador, another 20 earthquakes, rating at least five on the Richter scale, shook Japan, Indonesia, New Zealand, Mexico, the Santa Cruz Islands, the Solomon Islands, Peru, the Pacific Antarctic Ridge, and Alaska in a six-day period between January 23 and 29. I read that and I said, hey, hey, I want... I got to check this out for myself. So we got the internet specialist in our home, the teenager, Chrissy. I said, Chrissy, find for me, please, United States Geological Service website. She found it. Hey, we pulled it off. I've got the pages right here. We took 48 hours with Seattle in the middle, 48 hours around the Seattle quake. How many quakes on earth during that 48 hour period? 21 quakes with seven of them 5.0 or higher. I was listening to Tom Brokaw Thursday night, NBC Nightly News. He announced, since this year, we have already had seven quakes over 7.0 on the Richter scale. 
That's, that statistic is so significant. I want you to write it down, please, in your study guide right now. In the first two months of this year, there have been seven, right in the number seven, earthquakes, 7.0 or higher on the Richter scale. And all the while, poor Los Angeles constructed upon eight faults, eight of them. They are told in the next 20 years they have an 80% chance of the big one striking L.A. And if it strikes L.A. and it's seven and above, they're predicting up to 50,000 lives will be lost in that city. The town I was born in, my hometown, Tokyo, Japan, the same odds. Next 20 years, 80% chance the big one will hit Tokyo. You say, so what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. Jesus, before he left us 2,000 years ago, left a warning of what could be expected on earth prior to his return. Go to the Gospel of St. Luke on the screen. Luke 21, verse 11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. Take your study guide again. Two words. They're, on, they're yellow on the screen now. Put in the word earthquakes and the word great. Great earthquakes. Mega seismos. Mega seismos. Ooh. Fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, once your mind has been sensitized by this warning from Christ, I, I tell you, you, it just happens. You cannot help but sit up and wonder every time there is another earthquake and the planet is shaken, is this yet another sign of Jesus soon coming? You cannot help it once your mind has been sensitized. I'm going to be very candid with you right now. There was a time... When I wrote off all earthquakes and natural disasters as simply that, as, as natural, all natural. I mean, come on, you know, Mother Nature is doing her usual thing. You can expect this living on an earth with seismic plates and deep geographic faults. Tectonic shifts have been a way of life forever on this terrestrial ball. So I once surmised. Until I re-reflected on the words of Holy Scripture, and I was disturbed to discover that the Bible often describes earthquakes as seminal signs and seismic warnings or judgments directly from God. Signs that reveal themselves whenever God approached or approaches this planet. You read Joel, Haggai, Amos, John, Isaiah, Jesus... To a man, they link quaking to the approach of God to this civilization. In fact, I never saw this before. I was going through the concordances last week. I've read Isaiah 29.6 all my life, I suppose. I never noted. And let's put it on the screen for you. Isaiah 29.6. You will be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder. When he comes, you're going to have thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. You know, it's as if inanimate creation itself recognizes what our sin-stupid minds refuse to acknowledge. Hey, the Creator is coming back to this planet. And the earth shakes. At the beginning of this last century, these warning words were written. Read them off the screen, please. More and more as the days go by, it is becoming apparent that God's judgments are in the world. In fire and flood and earthquake, he's warning the inhabitants of this earth of his near approach. The time is nearing when the great crisis in the history of the world will have come, when every movement in the government of God will be watched with intense interest and inexpressible apprehension. In quick succession, the judgments of God will follow one another. Fire and flood and earthquake with war and bloodshed. End quote. Seven... Earthquakes already this year, 7.0 and higher. Could it be God's desperately trying to awaken this civilization one last time? Seattle, by the way, partied mindlessly into the night Saturday night. In fact, that Mardi Gras party went out of control and it became national news. They trashed downtown. That was Saturday night. Wednesday, the city is shaken. How does Revelation 6, verse 12 read? And I beheld... When he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Verse 17, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Which being interpreted means, are you ready for Jesus to come? 
I've got to tell you, it is absolutely no coincidence that the final question in Revelation chapter 6 is immediately answered with the first words of uh, Revelation 7. I-, I must admit, the question is rather intimidating. Who shall be able to stand? It's almost like a rhetorical question. Nobody is going to be able to stand. I am worried now, but hallelujah, along comes Revelation 7 and says, hey, wait a minute, by the thousands and thousands and thousands, men, women, and young adults all over this planet will be standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Don't ever stop reading with Revelation 6. Please make sure you go on to Revelation chapter 7. I want to read Revelation 7 with you. It's right there. Last question to be asked, who shall be able to stand? Answer, verse 1 of chapter 7, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, north, east, west, and south. You take the four first letters of the points on the compass and you get the word news. That's where it came from. North, east, west, and south. They're standing on the four corners. I saw them. They were holding the wind that it should not blow on the earth, verse 1, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice. Oh boy, don't get me distracted there again. That's loud voice. You know, I went through and counted them 21 times in the book of Revelation. It says, mega, mega, phone. From whence comes our word megaphone. 21 times. God loves to play the apocalypse loud. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Verse 3 saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now verse 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Who's going to be able to stand in that great judgment day? Hallelujah! By the thousands and thousands, they shall stand. Oh, come on, Dwight. You don't, you don't, you don't mean to believe that there are going to only be 144,000 people standing and ready for Christ at the end. Nope, I do not, because the apocalypse doesn't believe that either. Now, left behind, oh boy, left behind the books. They are really big on trying to teach the world that these 144,000 are literal Jews who have converted to Christ sometime after the secret rapture or during that great seven-year tribulation. You know, I... I, I pulled out Tim LaHaye's companion volume to this best-selling series worldwide, titled the book of his, Are We Living in the End Times? He has a whole chapter devoted to the 144,000, and he spends page after page. Yep, yep, yep. These are 144,000 Jewish men. Now, there is nothing wrong with Jewish men, you understand. I have some good friends who are male Jews. But Tim LaHaye, bless his soul, is trying hard to defend a brand of mistaken Bible interpretation called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism says, oh, you're stuck. You have to make every prophecy in the Old and New Testament, when it has to do with literal, with, with Israel rather, it's all literal. So he has no choice. No choice but to conclude the 144,000 have to be literal, Jewish. We'll find out in just a moment. Men. By the way, we, we took a look at that study on dispensationalism a few uh, times ago, and I want to say again, for those of you watching on television, that's pmchurch.org, areyousearching.com. You can get a part of this entire series that we are concluding today, and I hope you will. You see, what Left Behind has done is they have left behind a critical parallel passage. I went through everything LaHaye wrote on this. I, I could not find the parallel passage. I said, Tim, my man, you, you left it out. You can't have just one without the other. In fact, this is so important, I want you to get it, please, in your study guide. Revelation 7, you see the next sentence here? Revelation 7, 1 to 4, and Revelation, write it in, 14, 1 through 5, must go together. You can't separate them. So let's go seven chapters later in the book of Revelation. Let's, let's read it together. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. John says, hey, I was in vision and I looked, verse 1. And lo, a lamb. Come on, refresh my memory. Who is the lamb? We'll leave the words on the screen. Who is the lamb? Who's the lamb, ladies and gentlemen? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is post-Calvary. After the cross, Jesus. John says, and I looked and oh, isn't this wonderful? There is Jesus, the lamb, standing on Mount Zion. Now, 
Hold it right there. Where is Mount Zion? Oh, they must be over in Jerusalem. Will they meet at Jerusalem? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Sorry, left behind. You didn't notice Hebrews chapter 13. Let's put it on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, rather, verse 22. But you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. In the New Testament, Mount Zion is no longer that piece of terra firma. It is now heaven itself. What, what John is seeing right here is God, the last generation of God's forever friends gathered around Jesus. Who are these people? Let's read on. Let's go back to verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him, oh, here they are, an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. Earth's last generation of God's forever friends. These are they now. They're shown where they're going to end up. John says, I want you to know, it's, it, it's tough down here. Good news, you're going to end up right around Jesus on the mountain of heaven. Don't you let go now. Don't you let go. Hang on to the Lord Jesus Christ to the very end. Now, are there only going to be 144,000 in this end time generation? Not at all. The number is just as symbolic as the moral description we're going to read. In fact, if this is all literal, let me tell you something. We are in big trouble. You'll see in just a moment. In fact, let's find out. Let's begin reading. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of the harpers harping with their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn the song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. They've been through something. Oh, boy, hold it right there. They have been through something that no other generation will go through. It's not a different standard getting into heaven. Jesus is the standard. He has been from every generation. He's by faith in Christ. That's the only way you get into heaven. But this generation, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 Michael, your prince, will stand up at the end and there shall be a time of trouble such as there has not been since the earth began. This generation goes through an experience. How is it going to say, wow, you, you went through that? By the grace of Christ, we did. So you see, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique song that they will sing. And we sang it a moment ago, didn't we? The song of the Lamb. Well, that wasn't really the song of the Lamb, but we sang about the song. Now, did I, did I finish verse 3? Then let's go down to verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women... For they are virgins. Lock that thought in. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Whoa, whoa. Did you catch the word virgins? can't imagine a university audience not catching the word. It's there. Wait a minute, wait a minute, hold, hold, hold. Do you mean that the people who are able to stand in answer to that question, these who are ready for Jesus to come at the end, are all virgins? Well, there are a whole lot of us, us in trouble now. Well, that's what you would have to conclude if you interpret the passage literally. The 144,000 would have to be virgin male Jews. Which would leave, as I said, a whole lot of us out of the picture. But fortunately, left behind, left behind something, left it out of the picture. Because you see, look, how could you say that this end time generation, which is described as not being defiled by women. I mean, well, what is this? That simply cannot mean that they are, they are all unmarried virgins. Because the Bible is clear. Get this, ladies and gentlemen. When a man marries a woman, he is not defiled by her, nor is she by him. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. As we found out in our series last fall. It's a wonderful gift. In fact, I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. I believe this verse speaks for itself. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed, that's the marriage bed, undefiled. My friends, marriage has always been God's gift to a husband and a wife. It's, it's a wonderful gift. It's not what defiles you. In fact, you keep the marriage bed undefiled. And everybody knows exactly what that means, now don't we? So John can hardly be trying to teach here that the 144,000 are unmarried, virgin, male Jews. I, I wish you'd get this in your study guide, please, because this is a critical point. In fact, there are two lines here that I see uh, in our exuberance. We need to fill in, right under Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Would you write the, the number 
144,000, right in the word, the number rather, 144,000, is just as symbolic as the description of this end time generation. And now, would you write in the next line? Marriage is not, the next line is marriage is not defiling, so the 144,000 can't be literal virgins. Write in the word defiling and write in the word virgins. They can't be. This has got to be symbolic. There's a much more dramatic truth here that the apocalypse is portraying. And unfortunately, it is a truth, another truth that left behind has left behind. You see, actually, in the apocalypse, there are two women. Count them. One, two. In fact, this book, really, is a dramatic play and counterplay. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dialectic. It is a tension between two women all the way through the book. In fact, I don't want to lose that thought. I, I wish you'd write that and get that in your study guide because this is what will help unlock what has confused others. Revelation portrays the play and counterplay between two women. Get the word women there. I want that to, to lock in. It's, 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 just this, it's this tension. It's this drama, the battle between two women. Now, once you're introduced to the two women, boom, it will suddenly click in your mind. Wait a minute. The 144,000 are those people who are not defiled. They don't go to bed with one of those women. The big question for us is, which woman is it? So on the canvas of the apocalypse, there is a brief but stunning portrait painted of each of these women. And I want to go to them. Woman number one first. Let's go to woman number one, Revelation chapter 12. Just turn back a page or two. Revelation chapter 12. You've got to see this. This is absolutely Stunning when we put the two. And we're going to put the two on the screen, by the way, in a bit. You're going to see them both side by side. Art, I know it's an artist's portrayal, but hold on. Let's read how the words describe it. Verse 1 of Revelation 12. And there appeared a great, there's the word mega again, wonder or sign in heaven. A woman, there she is, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. I've got to tell you, twelve is a big number in, in the Bible. You have twelve tribes. You have twelve apostles. That's what the 144,000, that's how you get the number. You take the big number in the Bible and you square it. And you multiply by 10 to the third power, just multiply it by a thousand, you get 144,000. Twelve foundations, twelve gates in the New Jerusalem, twelve. It's a big number. She has, what does it say here? And upon her head, a crown of twelve stars. By the way, the Greek word for crown here, Stephanos. Anybody here named Stephan or Stephen? Your name means crown. It's the crown of a victor. She's victorious. It's the, it's the laurel wreath. That even the athletes would wear. So she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she, oh ladies, can you identify with this? Some of you. And she being with child, cried, tra travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. I mean, we're talking about this woman. She is huge. We are talking about the day before practically. And she's already going into labor pain. Doctor, is there a doctor in this house? Quick, the lady's going to give birth. Now... Something else happens. Watch this. Verse 3. And there appeared another wonder sign in heaven. Behold, a great, there it is, mega red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Now it's a new word for crown. Diademata. From whence comes the word diadem? This is not a crown of victory. No, 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 no. This is a crown of power. He's a ruler. See? Big difference. Big difference here. Alright, so now here's this dragon. And what's the dragon doing? Oh, by the way, who is this dragon? Wait a minute, hold it, hold it. Who is this dragon? Should I assume that you know? Let's put verse 9. Let's put verse 9 on the screen. Who is the dragon? Ah, the dragon. This is the great dragon who was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So we know who the dragon is. It's the devil. The woman is about, she's going into labor. There is a salivating dragon, see? His mouth open. Just let that baby out and I will have him. Verse 4, oh, oh, by the way, verse 4 says, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Many Bible scholars believe one-third of the angels duped, tricked, deceived by Lucifer into following him. Lucifer is the dragon, as you know. 
And so the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Remember a story about a baby? As soon as that baby is born, a wicked king tries to kill the baby. Who's the baby? Baby Jesus. What's the name of the king? King Herod. And verse 5, oh, missed. Verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Straight out of Psalm 2.9. It's messianic. Only the Messiah rules with a rod of iron. She gave birth to the Messiah, and her child was caught up unto God and to His throne. I missed it. The dragon is fuming. I missed it. But if he can't go for the Messiah, then let me have, just give me this woman. And the rest of the chapter is summarized in verse 6. And the woman, knowing the dragon was coming after her, fled into the wilderness. She went underground. She went into mountains. She went into caves. It looked like she had disappeared. Oh, no, no, no. You think God is going to let this community of faith that gave birth to Christ Himself. You think the truth of God is going to be decimated, destroyed by the dragon? Not in your life. She goes into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. I love that. God will never leave you hanging. God knows if your life is under pursuit today by the devil himself. God has an escape for you, my friend. If you will take his escape, you can flee the dragon. You can. You can. You can. God had a place prepared for her. Let's keep reading here. Where they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, which being interpreted is one thousand two hundred and sixty days. Oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. One day in Bible prophecy, refresh my memory from this course. One day in Bible prophecy equals how long? One year. You're right. Over a thousand year period, some power, the dragon is going to be ruthlessly ruling the earth through, we found out in an earlier study, the Antichrist power. The dragon ruthlessly ruling and seeking to destroy every vestige of this woman. Is he successful? The answer is hallelujah. He cannot destroy the community of faith that propagates and preserves the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? Though, sorry, lady. Sorry. You cannot stay in hiding forever. You're going to have to come out. You're going to have to go into that arena before Christ returns. And she comes out. She goes into the arena one last time. It's the dragon against the woman. Summarized in verse 17, the last verse of this chapter. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, enraged. He was furious with her. And he went to make war with the remnant. What is left at the very end, the final manifestation. He went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Who are these people? Some of you watching on television right now have been in pursuit of truth all your life. You have asked yourself, how can I know I shall find God's people? Over a thousand churches and denominations in the United States alone. How are you going to know? Well, they're described in rather uh, apocalyptic shorthand right here. Who are these people? They keep, back to verse 17, they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They have God's commandments. They have, by the grace of God, God's Christ. Oh, by the way, the Ten Commandments, which we found out last week are part of the seal, they get sealed into that end-time generation. The Ten Commandments do have the Fourth Commandment. I, I would not be fair if I didn't remind you that the Fourth Commandment begins with the words, Remember the Sabbath day. The Seventh-day Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're looking for a community that honors the Creator at the end of time. I tell you, you just had one qualification put there for you. Write it down. God will lead you. I don't know where God's going to lead you, but He will lead you to find a community that believes that not just nine-tenths, but all ten-tenths of the eternal Decalogue reflecting the very character of God. All ten. Even the fourth. You'll, you'll find one. God will lead you. These are our people that have God's commandments and they have God's Christ. They, they are passionate about Jesus. Oh, wow. Well, there, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. That's it. That's woman number one. Pure. Pristine. Robe with the light of the sun. Gives birth to the Messiah. Goes into hiding for over a thousand years. But before Jesus comes, re-manifests herself. Truth's banner is held high. There it is. Well... Quick, let's go look at the second canvas because the paint is already dried on it. John painted these 
prophetic strokes long ago. Go to chapter 17. Woman number two. I tell you, the contrast... We'll put their two pictures up in just a moment. The contrast is stunning. Revelation chapter 17. This is a shorter, shorter canvas, so we'll, we'll fly through this. Verse 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked to me, saying to me, John, hey, boy, come hither. I want to show you the judgment of the great whore, the great prostitute, the great harlot that sits upon many waters. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. I want to tell you something, John. This power has political alliances with all the major nations of earth. Kings of earth have committed fornication with her. By the way, the word for fornication is the same word in Greek from whence comes our word pornography. It's porneos. It's pornography. Pornography. They've been sucked into her. They've committed fornication with her. Oh, and by the way, not just the leaders of earth, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of the same word fornication, pornography. I'm telling you, it's not a very pleasant picture. You're going to see. I mean, this is, we're, we're, talking, we're talking the lady is a tramp. Verse 3, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Blasphemy is a way she operates. But wait a minute, what does blasphemy mean? Let's just let, just put, hit the pause button right here. Let's let the Bible interpret itself. There are only two places where blasphemy is defined in the New Testament. Mark chapter 2, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, why does this man speak blasphemies? For who can forgive sin but God alone? So blasphemy would say, hey, listen, you come to me to receive forgiveness. That's what blasphemy is. Offering forgiveness when only God can forgive. You come to me and confess. You come to me. That's called blasphemy. There's only one other definition. That's John chapter 10, verse 33. And the Jews answered Jesus saying, Hey, we're not going to stone you for a good work. No, 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 no. But for blasphemy, because you being a man have made yourself God. That's another definition for blasphemy. When you take to yourself prerogatives that are only God's. This power... Blasphemy claims it can forgive, claims it stands as God's on earth. But now here comes the stunning painting of the woman. And the woman, verse 4, was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. Finally, verse 6, And I, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The Greek reads, I wondered with great wonder. And no wonder. He's seen the woman in Revelation 12. And now the, the, the sordid contrast, it cannot be escaped. He sees woman too. What do we have here? There are only two women in the Apocalypse. Write it in your study guide. Let's get this straight. At the very bottom of your page, woman number one, Revelation 12. You know what? I am sure that if John had our study guide right now, he could fill it in without having to look at the screen for the answer. He would tell us, ladies and gentlemen, woman number one, the pure and true community of faith. Then we say, John, then who is this woman number two? Turn your study guide over. Revelation 17, he said, ah, that is a corrupted and false community of faith. I want to put the two women up side by side on this screen. There they are. Two women. Revelation is gripped with a dialectic, this dramatic play and counterplay between these two women. The woman who follows the Lamb and the woman who rides the beast. The woman who is the handmaiden of Christ and the woman who is the harlot of the Antichrist. The woman who champions the seal of God and the woman who enforces the mark of the beast. There they are. Take a look at them. Two religious communities that shall be embroiled in the final showdown between the Lamb and the Dragon, between Christ and Satan. Mark it well, ladies and gentlemen. There will be no third choice because there is no third camp. There are only two in the end. Anybody who comes and tells you, nope, there'll be a whole lot of mountains, go, a lot of paths going up the mountain, has not heard of the apocalypse. There will be but two. But two. 
Which is precisely why the final question that will face every inhabitant of earth will be this choice between the lamb and the dragon. This woman and this woman. Being ready means making a choice. And so what choices are you making? You know what, my friends? Here we are, planet Earth, and the Earth is just shaking beneath our feet all over this planet. We live, every time it shakes, we surely conclude we are living on a judgment-bound planet. We are living in a judgment-bound civilization. We are living as a judgment-bound people. I suppose every time the Earth quakes, the question ought to be asked, choose you. Have you chosen yet? Choose you this day. Hurry, 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 hurry. Quick, quick, quick. Choose this day whom you would serve. How how do you escape that? But it's clear to me that is that the 144,000 have already made their choice. Would you write that word in? The 144,000? It's a symbolic number. There'll be many more than that. The 144,000 are men, women, and young adults who make their choice. Write the word in. They make their choice. What is the choice they make? I want to end with this verse. Go back to Revelation 14. Oh, boy, I wish you brought your whole crayon box right now because I'd ask you to surround verse 14, this one line in, in, in verse 4, rather, Revelation 14, with every color you've got in that pocket of yours, in that purse of yours. Write it down. Who is this last generation that shall be ready for Christ when He comes? Underline the line. There's a single line, Revelation 14, 4. These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Write that in your study guide, by the way. These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is the Jesus generation, my friends. This is a generation of men, women, and children, young adults, University students who have said, I will only follow Jesus. I don't care what it costs to stand for Him. I will only follow Him. I I cannot answer for you, but I'm going to tell you something. I choose today to be in the camp of woman number one. I do not want to be in the camp of the harlot of Babylon just before Jesus comes. Babylon means confusion, and I'm telling you, there is no confusion in the minds of the 144,000. They have chosen to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are a people with a Jesus passion. I love this. Have you ever heard of Nicholas von Zinzendorf? Raised up as a young university student, what he called the Order of the Mustard Seed Conspiracy. They became known as the Moravians. The greatest Christian missionary movement in the history, really in the history. Nicholas von Zinzendorf wrote these words once and I have them inscribed in the cover of my Bible. I have but one passion, that is He, only He. These are a people who have but one passion, that is He, only He. These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Hit the pause button again because I want to talk to the campus now. You and I who live here. What does that mean in a campus like this? It, it surely must mean that we and our leadership, and when I say leadership, I'm talking about our administrators, our board, our faculty, our staff, our student leaders, our students. It surely must mean that we must continually be addressing the question, how is it with the Christ life in our midst? What is it we countenance on this campus? What is it we ignore? What is it we tolerate? That's the new mantra for this post, postmodern secular society. What is it that we tolerate in our libraries, in our bookstores, in our student centers? Do we compromise the life of Christ in our universities? Do we turn a blind eye to reading lists and video inventories? Does our music blare with refrains that would surely cause the angels to blush knowing it comes from those who bear the name of Christ Himself? And do we as leaders grumble at those outside our circle who would challenge our commitment to Christ all the while we keep trying hard to defend our choice to allow our young adult children to make their own choices? But what if their own choices are flying in the face of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world? 
Is it truly open-mindedness to tolerate the bankrupted standards of a confused and Babylonian society all in the name of exposing ourselves to how the real but fallen world lives and thinks? Does God want us so exposed? I realize that there are complex issues involved and I am not suggesting at all that all the solutions are simple solutions. And by the way, those of us who are not a part of the critical decision-making in these matters need to be sympathetically praying for those who are. For I can tell you, I know they carry heavy, heavy burdens. And these are not easy decisions. But surely preparing for the return of Jesus necessitates that we together wrestle with these matters in prayer. And we stay in prayer. Until we all come to what we believe would, be the, would bear the stamp of God's approval and would reflect His name and character in every venue, in every school of this Adventist university. After all, who are the 144,000? These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Are we they? Are we ready for Jesus to come? I've been stirred as I've been reading, rereading Ellie Froome's magnum opus, The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers. Last Friday night I read the story of the great English reformer Hugh Latimer, who, by the way, was a contemporary of Martin Luther and who was consigned to the stake by Bloody Mary, you've heard of Bloody Queen Mary, burned at the stake in 1555 with a cohort of his, as the two of them were being lashed and strapped to those stakes. Latimer turned his head sideways, and he spoke to his companion words that are now carved on a wall in old London town. I'll put the words on the screen for you. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Wow. Of the last generation on earth, the 144,000, Holy Scripture reads, these are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I want to tell you something, my friend. Don't know who you are, but I'm telling you, it is time to choose. It is time to stand up in that dormitory, in that boardroom, in that home, at those offices. It is time to stand up and be counted. From now on, well, I can't speak for you, but from now on, every earthquake that I shall see, or feel shall become a divine judgment and a divine summons to choose. Choose you this day whom you would serve. You can't put it off. You know what? Not choosing is to make a choice. What did he say is that before they ignited the flames, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The fire will not be put out. You and I must stand for that fire. We must stand. These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. You can't get out of the cross. You cannot get away from that cross. It will cost you something to stand for the Lamb at the end of time. It will cost you everything. But you get everything in exchange. Hallelujah. You get the whole universe wrapped up with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your choice. Your choice. Are you ready for Jesus to come? I want to make an invitation today. I've asked our musicians to come and sing one more song with us. But while they're setting up, I want to make an invitation. There are some people right now in this building or outside this building watching on television. There are some of you who are still wrestling with the choice which 
of these women. I mean, how do I align my life? Shall I follow the woman of Revelation 12? She who follows the Lamb. Some of you wrestling with the choice of becoming a part of a community that keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony, the faith of the Lord Jesus. I'm telling you what, my friend, wherever you are right now, I wish, I wish in the quiet of your heart, you would reach out to Christ Himself and you say, Jesus, by Your grace and by Your strength, I would make that decision. It may be that there's some right here, right now, who are wrestling with that decision. And I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a second to get up out of that pew. I'd like you to come here. I'd like you to come to the front. Say, I I want to follow Jesus. I, I want to be ready. I want to stand with the Lamb wherever He leads. You know, I can't shake the student at the end of that little video collage who said, I'm just, I'm, I don't want it to come now. I'm just not ready. There may be some here today who say, you know what, Dwight, that's exactly how my heart responds. I'm not ready. If he came tonight, I'm not ready. Some of you are struggling. Struggling with a, with a ball and chain that Jesus wants to set you free from. You can be free. You can come to the Christ. This Lamb has all power under heaven and earth. There is nothing Jesus cannot free you from. Nothing, nothing, nothing. If you want to be ready... And by the way, how do you get ready? You come to the Lamb. The Lamb is who saves. There's no church on earth that can save. It is the Lamb who saves. Come to Me. He that cometh to Me, she that cometh to Me, I will never cast away. I'd like you to come to Jesus today. I wish you'd come to the front here. You need Jesus to set you free. Maybe you've never come to Christ before. I wish you would today. While they sing this beautiful invitation, are you ready for Jesus to come? There are only two stanzas to it. I wish you would come forward. I'm going to invite us all to stand to make it easy for somebody to slip out. Bow your head in in a moment of prayer. Say, oh, Pastor, you're not talking about me. Well, there may be somebody within inches of you for whom the Spirit now begins to make an earnest appeal. Would you be praying then if this is not your heart? Be praying right now. This is a saving place. And Jesus is already at work. The Bible is clear. Today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. You say, well, you know, I'll check the Scripture out some more. I hope you will. I hope you go deep into this book. You have to make a decision one day about these two women. It's a decision for the Lamb and I must tell you there never is a more opportune moment than the moment where your heart is is, is seized with that conviction, I have got to choose. My friend, if your heart is struggling right now, accept that. It's not the devil. The devil doesn't want to save you. He would never call you to make a decision. Somebody else is calling. If you've never made a decision before about the Bible truth that we just shared today, I wish you would, in the quiet of your home right now, anywhere in the country, make that decision. But then I say to the worshipers, we who have come here today, you know, there's some who say, I just, I I don't know if, if Jesus came tonight, I'd be ready. My friend, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt if you'll just come and embrace Jesus. Jesus said, He who confesses Me before others, I will confess before the Father. There's something in the act of coming forward in which you tell yourself, I want to follow the Lamb. If your heart is struggling right now, you're behind Me in the choir. You're up in the balcony. You're here in this church. It's it's a moment for the community to respond. I invite you to come forward. Some of you, and this is the third group, one more stanza. Some of you struggling right now. You need the courage to forsake that which has so easily been your ball and chain. Jesus says, by the blood of the Lamb, you can overcome the dragon. Revelation 12, verse 11. They're going to sing one more stanza. I wish you would come. You're not coming to me. You're not coming to a church. You're coming to the Christ who soon... Every shaking of the earth is a reminder soon He comes for us. While they sing, would you come, please? How about the rest of us? 
You want to join with these who've come forward and say, Oh, Jesus, please, I recommit my life to You today. I give You everything I have. I'm going to raise your hand and just say, Please, Christ, by Your grace I shall follow You whithersoever You go. And whatever it means to stand up for You, whatever it means to speak out for You, I shall by Your grace count on Me. Oh, Father, thank You. Calvary has paid the price. There is never a question, can Jesus make us ready? He's the all-sufficient Savior. We are ready in Christ. And so for these who today, Holy Father, who have come forward, for these watching on television, for these who are reaching out to You and saying, God, start over in my life. For these who've, who've, with a desperate prayer, said, take this ball and chain, I give it to you. For these who want to overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb, for these, dear God, seal this decision. Keep, it, keep the memory fresh. Keep the memory alive. And as we as a community move out, once again into a world that is judgment-bound. May we move out with joy and hope and grace to tell the glad tidings, you too can come to Jesus and you too can be ready for the soon coming King. Holy Father, grant that to all of us. For the victory of Calvary, in the name of the Lamb, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.